Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Sentinai. Sentinai is using machine learning to automate data engineering and make it easier for data scientists to build software that makes real-time, autonomous decisions. Sentinai is hiring Haskell and machine learning engineers to help connect intelligent systems with the data they need. Interested? Email jobs at thetalkingmachines.com. listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And this episode is our final episode of season one. We'll be bringing you a whole new season of Talking Machines starting in January 2016. We're very excited about it. But today, Ryan, you wanted to talk about some of the new open source releases that have been coming out. Yeah, that's right. In the last two weeks, there's been a couple of really interesting open source releases for doing machine learning, specifically deep learning. So Twitter Cortex, which is the the group that I'm affiliated with at, at Twitter, um, released a, uh, a Torch implementation of uh, the idea of Autograd. Um, and then also, uh, Google has released its TensorFlow library. And these are both kind of interesting and in some ways a little bit orthogonal kind of developments. And um, so I thought I'd take a second to sort of talk about those. So Torch Autograd is an implementation of uh, automatic differentiation using the kind of the ideas from uh, broadly from Python Autograd, uh, which has been developed by Dougal McLaurin and David Duvineau and also Matt Johnson. And uh, it's this kind of nice way to do automatic differentiation that allows it to be very transparent um, uh, and, uh, and uses this kind of idea of an execution tape behind the scenes. And um, Torch is a very successful library uh, or a sort of package used for deep learning and other kinds of machine learning that essentially allows you to do fast matrix computations and other kinds of numeric uh, numeric analysis, let's say, in, uh, in Lua. And people like it at, you know, in academia and industry for, for doing deep learning. Um, it is an example of the kind of um, automatic differentiation uh, that sort of implements a mini language inside the uh, uh, inside Lua, where you have these kind of objects and you can compose them together and construct an execution graph with some limited control flow for, um, for then doing something like uh, you know, reverse mode differentiation so that you can find a gradient so that then you can do deep learning on say like an image recognition problem or something like that. The, uh, what's interesting about this sort of autograd approach is that rather than thinking about this kind of mini language and constructing an execution graph using it, that you can a little bit more generally write a uh, control flow that would look very much like the sort of native language that you're programming in using its its full suite of control flow operators, like loops and so on. And so this is a very nice thing because it allows you to just focus on the forward pass, um, write the code in the way that you would normally write the code, and then you get these gradients for free. What's really interesting about, about Torch Autograd, and, and I should say this is developed by, by Alex Wolchko and by uh, Clement Farabay and also by Luke Alonso. What's really interesting about Torch Autograd is that it takes advantage of all the really cool optimizations that have gone into Torch. So Python Autograd is fun, it's pure, it's pure Python, it's great for prototyping, but it's, it's not going to sort of change your life in terms of performance. It saves you time, but it doesn't really save the computer time. And it can be sort of five to 10 times slower, depending on what you're, what you're doing, than if you had written sort of bespoke code to solve the same problem. 
Torch Autograd is really cool because uh, because it's almost as fast as doing regular Torch. In fact, it's probably going to be within sort of like uh, epsilon of its speed. Uh, and and there's been a lot of effort that's gone into Torch and making it very fast, uh, including GPU acceleration and, and lots of other things. So it allows you to kind of get the best of both worlds potentially, where you can use a um, you can you can change the way you operate with an existing deep learning stack, give you sort of more expression, more more sort of expressive power, um, and at the same time not really have to sacrifice any of the sort of computational performance. So that's so that's a very exciting development. I think it's going to let people think more creatively about how they they construct these kinds of differentiable composed functions. Uh, something that we're already seeing in a lot of uh, in a lot of different areas. And then TensorFlow. Um, made a really big splash coming out of Google. So Google does a lot of uh, a lot of deep learning in a lot of different sort of uh, areas. And they have invested a lot of effort in developing big uh, sophisticated systems for doing that kind of uh, doing that kind of learning. And in particular, you know, with world class engineers like like Jeff Dean. And one of the things that's really interesting about TensorFlow is it's the first, I think, um, sort of second generation deep learning platform. So there's been a lot of different things that have, a lot of different tools that have come out and they're starting to diversify in interesting ways. Google developed the sort of dist belief um, tool, sort of tool chain that they used internally. Um, and, and that was sort of a first attempt. And I think they learned a lot of lessons in developing that about what the right abstractions needed to be and what it should look like to distribute this in terms of uh, you know, data parallelism, model parallelism, and so on. And, um, and also kind of what the best way is to really think about you know, memory usage and GPU usage and, and lots of the different sort of details that turn out to, to really matter for, for nice implementations. And so it's exciting to see that refactoring of these, of these abstractions. And I think we'll start to see this kind of you know, several more times. In some ways, I think the sort of the, the like Torch Autograd is an example of this kind of refactoring where the V2 in a sense of how to do this is um, without a kind of a mini language but very flexible con control flow. Tensor, you know, TensorFlow is, is about thinking very hard about how to move data around, um, how to construct graphs efficiently, how to schedule computation, taking advantage of the, those graphs, and then also, of course, how to, how to do automatic differentiation backwards through them. And so uh, the TensorFlow paper and, uh, you know, talks about a lot of sort of really interesting things that I think reflect this, this wisdom that has been gathered um, from, uh, you know, so from sort of production quality uh, deep learning, you know, including, again, like, like how to kind of get the abstractions right. But also one of the deepest insights I thought I got from, from reading this was a fairly simple thing, which is trying to make a single interface and a single... Um, sort of single tool that allows researchers and engineers to explore the space of machine learning tools on their sort of desktops at small scale, but also to have that interface be preserved as it becomes production scale. And that they express the sentiment in the, in the paper that, one of the, that um, having gaps between those abstractions leads to sort of... Um, well, basically leads to bugs and inconsistencies and differences between the way the production system might work and what seems to work on the sort of at small scale. And I think that's a, I think that's kind of a deep insight and probably required a tremendous amount of thought on sort of in terms of abstraction. 
they've released um, this, what they kind of call a reference implementation of TensorFlow, uh, which is exciting because it gives you an idea of, of you know, how that, um, you know, what these abstractions look like and what the, um, you know, how these pieces sort of fit together. It's a little bit disappointing because it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't have all of the bits uh, for the actual sort of uh, distributed computation, which in some ways is the sort of biggest technical innovation of, uh, of TensorFlow. Um, it, you know, is really thinking hard about how to use a lot of computers to solve the problem. And, um, and so I don't know whether that's something they'll eventually do or whether this is part of the, the secret sauce that they're going to keep to themselves. Um, but it nevertheless is a really interesting thing. And, um, and it'll be interesting as well to see whether the landscape shifts towards, uh, towards this kind of approach in the kind of as this second generation kind of evolves or whether there will continue to be a sort of proliferation of, uh, of these different toolkits. We'll have links to both Torch Autograd and TensorFlow on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So this episode of Talking Machines, like we said earlier, is uh, the last one in our first season. And so I thought I would take the opportunity to ask you our listener question this awesome. week, Ryan. So, um, Ryan, I'm really interested to know what you see as the most influential shift in academia or industry um, this year, this past year. You know, I think I think there's a lot of there's been a lot of really great research and and new products and things coming out of industry and. Um, and wonderful new papers. It's been a very exciting year for um, for machine learning, and I think. Um, but I think that the kind of the biggest shift that I feel like I've seen in the last year has, in some ways, been about the the sort of mainstream acceptance and excitement about machine learning. That um, you know, machine learning has has I think to insiders become very good at a lot of things over the last several years, and it's obviously a field that's been around for decades. Um, but suddenly, you know, venture capitalists care about machine learning and, uh, you see articles about machine learning and wired and you see profiles of, um, you know, of people in, in the popular press and things like the release of open source software and machine learning suddenly, you know, gets actual popular media coverage, which is, which is crazy. Uh, the sort of thing that we could have never imagined relatively recently. And uh, and we're really seeing this this sort of ripple around in a lot of different a lot of different ways from major tech companies, um, sort of essentially announcing that they're sort of betting the company on machine learning algorithms to inform their products. We're seeing um, you know computer science departments really aggressively hiring in this space, and uh, you know we're seeing the release of uh, you know popular books like Pedro Domingos's book on machine learning that are actually targeting sort of lay audiences. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's suddenly as an area entered the kind of the, the consciousness and, uh, and that's, that's really interesting and, and also terrifying in some ways as a, you know, as a researcher in this area, you, you know, suddenly it feels like the stakes are kind of higher. And I, I think the, I think the, the kind of, um, the high stakes have also had a negative influence on on things. There's been, um, you know, there's been money involved in this in a way that there wasn't before. 
Um, and we've seen, for example, the sort of little scandal involving Baidu and, and uh, you know, ImageNet, uh, you know, causing, you know, suddenly people cared about that. And whereas maybe nobody would have cared about, about this kind of thing uh, very recently. Um, but it's also resulted in a, um, a democratization in some ways of, of these areas where smart people have been able to take these tools and learn about them and apply them in interesting and surprising domains, uh, even if they sort of, uh, you know, come from different areas. And that's really great. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun to see people trying to, 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 um, to build new, exciting things. So, um, so it's been a crazy year, I would say, in some ways for, for machine learning. And we're all still trying to figure out, you know, what the future holds. Many people, I think, are, um, are naturally hesitant and a little bit nervous about this uh, because hype in the sort of field of AI has often led to, uh, to sort of winters. And there's, there's definitely concerns about this excitement resulting um, in another winter if the, uh, you know, these tools don't deliver on their promises. And it's always hard to, to do that because the, the, you know, people always imagine the next thing that you can do and, and it can become tempting to promise that. So, um, so people are kind of, you know, there are some people who are trying to kind of rein this in and, and, and make it a sustainable level of excitement. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that sort of ambivalence aside, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time. You know, we're going into, you know, going into yet another NIPS conference in a couple of weeks and, um, I'm sure it will be even bigger and crazier than it has been in the past. And over the last couple of years, it always seems like it's, it's been bigger and crazier than the year before. So, um, so I would say, yeah, so the biggest development has been this kind of, um, entrance into the mainstream, uh, which hasn't really happened before. If you've got a question that you'd like us to answer in season two of Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. Today's guest on Talking Machines is Ben Vigoda, and when I got a chance to sit down with him a couple of weeks ago, I asked him the first question that we ask everyone, how did you get where you are? Well, it's a funny uh, thing. I, I have oscillated back and forth between physics and machine learning since I was about nine. <laughs> so I uh, started out building a laser because I needed to protect my room from invaders like my parents. Of course. And um, ended up winning the science fair in sixth grade with my laser that I made. And then I was like, well, how am I going to win the science fair again for seventh grade? Um, I need something better than a laser, which is you know kind of like a hard thing to do. <laughs> so I decided a robot would be better than, I mean, I guess eventually you could have a robot with a laser, which would be even better. But, um, so I built this sort of gantry robot that had, uh, it sort of would serve my friend's drinks. Cause we were just starting to be like, I guess you call them now tweens. <laughs> so no Kool-Aid drinks, but basically there were wires or cords from the corners of the room and motors and like my terrible 286 PC that I had to beg my parents for. And made all the circuits and everything. And then I was like, okay, so now the, for the easy part, let's just program it to serve the drinks, right? It all moved around and everything. (laughs) 
and uh, went to the library, which was how I learned about lasers, and my town had a good library, and so I just needed all the books on how to program your robot to serve drinks and do things, and uh, turned out nobody actually knew how to do that. Not a lot of robot programming <laughs> books. <laughs> yeah, so, well, the cool thing was uh, neural networks were like a big deal mm-hmm. uh, this was, they've been a big deal three times, actually. So that was the second time that they were a big deal. Uh, this was like 1988 or 89, mm-hmm. something like that. So I found a bunch of books about neural networks, and I started reading about those. And I realized that they're actually somehow related, uh, the statistics actually was related to lasers in the sense that somehow statistical physics, even at that age, I could kind of sort of make the connection. So I've... Um, so I was a physics undergrad, and then uh, in graduate school at the MIT Media Lab, uh, my advisor was Neil Gershenfeld, and we it was cool because finally I got to combine my two interests. So our group was all about how does physics and computation uh, come together. So some other people were like building the first quantum computer, for example. Wow. Um, I didn't do that, but that was really neat to see what they were doing. Um, and my thesis was... Uh, electrons are events and currents are probabilities and can we make a machine learning processor that uses the device physics to be the probabilities and that turned into my first startup. That's excellent and yeah. that was that was probabilistic processing right was your probabilistic your processing yeah yeah and then your first startup was Lyric. Right yeah so um, so uh, I have for whatever reason the projects that I've ended up doing in science have been sort of the kind of thing that would be hard to complete the project just with an academic lab Um, so you know by the end of building probabilistic processors we had spent about 50 million dollars and used about 30 people for like five years so uh, the only way to really do that was to come somewhere in between industry and academia and sort of this never never land that we're as a society have a hard time doing but yeah. you sort of also sort of um i could tell you a million adventure stories um i give a talk at harvard every year for the brave graduate students who might want to chart this course but um since there are fewer and fewer places like bell labs um and now in machine learning they're starting to be deep mind in a few places which is great but uh, when I was coming out, there wasn't really a place to do this, so I just had to make my own. We actually tried everything to avoid making a startup. We tried to be at a couple different corporate research labs. We offered MIT to just come back and try to do the work there. And in the end, we ended up incorporating a new corporate entity because it was kind of like the only way we could do it. So so talk to me talk to me about that a little bit more. And I want to return to repub- probabilistic sure. programming at some point and like yeah. have you explain all of that. <laughs> but I feel like a lot more people, like you said, especially in machine learning, are charting the startup path. But mm-hmm. but as one of the first people to do it, how did you even tackle that? Were you just like, Well, now I guess we have to make our own company, so come on guys, let's put on a show. Kinda. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um you know, one of the best things my I mean, my advisor was wonderful, um, but one of the greatest pieces of advice he ever gave me around the time I was graduating was, why don't you write a grant proposal? So no matter what <laughs> happens, that'll be useful. And um, so I did, and, and the, the grant funding actually enabled us to build our first prototypes as a startup. And in terms of figuring out that a startup would be a way to do this, it really started with a sandwich. I was 
in my last year of my PhD and I was sitting in the lab and I had been there maybe second to last year all day without any, maybe I'd had breakfast and it was eight o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night. And there was an email and it said, uh, free food, free sandwiches. <laughs> the graduate student diet. <laughs> I was like, don't care what it is. I need a sandwich. So I, um, kind of, uh, meandered my way over there. And when I came in, uh, there were a bunch of MBAs between me and the sandwich table and who made it kind of evident that I wasn't going to get a sandwich unless I explained to them <laughs> what my research was in a few sentences. And they turned out to, uh, it turned out to be the MIT entrepreneurship competition. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was a mingling event to kind of get the technology students out of their labs and talking with business students and with each other, I guess, as well. And so the, the, these folks said, um, well, we want to win this thing, and <clears throat> your your stuff sounds as good as any, and um, it, you know because we're going to just put a business plan around it, and it's just going to take you eight of your Saturdays, and you know I had like, as usual. Saturdays? Well, well, you know, I had some free time because I didn't have a, I never had a girlfriend, so in grad school, so uh, that was a good way to spend eight Saturdays, which otherwise would have been in the lab not eating sandwiches. So, um, <laughs> so I agreed, and we actually won. That's great. Um, we were second place at MIT. We were first place at Harvard. Oh, nice. Uh, Harvard has well, lower standards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and so that was kind of my introduction to the idea that a startup could be a way to take laboratory technology and actually try to do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. So so Lyric, Lyric was purchased by, by a larger company. Yeah. And I know just from having waited around in the startup the startup world a little bit, that that can be a really intense process for people. Super intense. Super intense. How yeah. was that for you? Uh, that was really intense. Uh, I think that's the right word for it. Um, you know, there was a period of time when I only bought one-way tickets between South Korea, Tel Aviv, San Jose, Boise, Idaho, and Boston because I didn't know which one of those I was going to next. Right. Kind of like a six to nine month period of time. Occasionally, I would get to come home and see my family and do my dry cleaning. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, the downside is you suddenly need to learn how to do a bunch of things that aren't just your science. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for someone, for me, you know, my real goal was I sort of started this project in graduate school and I just felt uh, that it w would have been a bit of um, shame to drop it before it kind of was proven out. And I didn't think that it was proven out enough that anyone else in the world <laughs> would care enough <laughs> to actually try to do it uh, unless, you know, we just kept going. And so... Um, and and so it just kind of felt like a responsibility that you sort of had this idea and now you have to grow it up and send it off to college kind right, of. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And how was how was the sort of the the letting go? I mean when when the baby goes off to college you have to it sort of becomes its own thing and starts doing things that maybe you didn't think that it was going to do. Yeah, so you know I th I think it's an apt analogy because it is a little bit bittersweet. Mm. Um that said, it's been super exciting to see that, um, you know, so the, the startup was 
you know, recently graphics processor units, hardware, have been a big part of machine learning. They've led to, uh, they've been a component, uh, enabling component in neural networks, deep learning, um, and other things. Um, even before that was happening, before GPUs were sort of used in machine learning, at least that I knew of, um, you know, we beat the pants off GPUs. We had chips that could uh, take fundamental algorithms for machine learning and do them like 10,000 times better, lower power, faster than, than a GPU, for example, or any other processor available. So, so we built these processors for machine learning that were, you know, we thought they were really awesome. And, uh, you know, I think the ultimate goal was to see them in, in all kinds of products. And so now, you know, they're going into things like Amazon products and Apple products and all the base stations that certain base station companies make. And that's exciting because I'm pretty sure, you know, everyone's cell phone signal, your voice going to the cell phone, going across the network and getting to somebody else is like going through some of my chips, like at least once, if not more than once, uh, that's pretty neat. So, um, to me, you know, that, 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 uh, was like mission complete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's try to do this again. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And so you have, you have another company that you started mm -hmm. um, relatively recently. Yeah. Tell me what you're working on there. Well, so it actually, the broad idea was sort of present all the way back from in the lab at MIT. Um, we always knew that microchips are so, even for the engineers who use them, are, are arcane objects complicated to program and use at the fundamental level. You know, hardware is hard. Uh, is that why they call it hardware? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so um, we can take that out in post-production. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so we always wanted there to be an, a programming model, for a, a better way to program the, these chips. We said, we're going to have these new chips. They're going to be kind of complicated. They're going to be even for the engineers who might use them, kind of maybe difficult to learn how to use. And actually, that's not just a pedagogical issue. That's a business issue because they won't want to buy them if they're right. hard to use. So um, we always had this idea of probabilistic programming to go with the probabilistic processing. And that was basically a way to make the chips really usable. And so the thought was, you just um, – I'll tell you more of the technical details, but at a high level, you, you write your machine learning algorithm, your model, mm -hmm. in this really beautiful, easy-to-use programming environment um, where you don't have to put in a lot of the mathematical, too many of the mathematical details, um, and then, um, or at least not ones about how the chip's going to work or right. solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, describing the, the data and the kind of statistics. And then you're going to kind of push compile and this magical compiler button is going to work. And what's going to end up happening is that the processor is going to then take what you wrote and run it really, really fast and efficiently. And so it's going to be super easy to use. And so that was sort of the idea. And so what we did was we open sourced the probabilistic programming environment that we had developed uh, over time uh, because we wanted people to use it. And we went out, uh, gave a tech talk at Google and um, ended up chatting with Kevin Murphy and he actually ended up using it for one of his projects. Oh, wow. uh, they didn't use the processors, but they, they found the probabilistic programming itself useful. And um, around that time there started to be uh, not just in my lab, which my startup kind of became the innovation 
one of the innovation centers in the company that bought us um, analog devices. So we're kind of corporate research labs, and we were not just in that lab, but also across academia, there was sort of a revolution happening in probabilistic programming. People were taking this seriously. Um, and Noah Goodman at Stanford, for example, was the first author on a paper about probabilistic programming that um, I look at as being really seminal in the field. And so we kind of hooked up together and decided to make my second startup. Um, so uh, that's what we're doing. So I've heard you quoted as saying that the thing that you're interested in working on is is creating the space for people are really excited about big data and what you can use that for right now, but you're excited about creating a space for big models. Totally. Yes. Tell me, thank you. What is a big model, Ben, and how do I use it? <laughs> well, so I think um, one good example is my friend Julian DeWitt, at, uh, who recently completed his uh, PhD at MIT. Um, they study in his group, exoplanets. And they found... And exoplanets are the little planets. It's what Pluto is now, right? It's a, it's a smaller planet. No, no, planet. no. This is no. even farther away okay. than Pluto, which is amazing. These are the planets we find around stars that are not our sun. Got it. So okay. these things uh, could be a thousand light years away. Uh, they're in the Milky Way. They mm -hmm. think there's about, I don't know, 30 million of them. Oh, wow. And... Um, you know, it's just becoming possible with these new um, telescopes like Kepler to actually detect them. But what these guys did is they didn't just detect a planet. They found clouds on the planet a thousand light years away. That's crazy. And they used machine learning to do it. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they, they used what I would call big model. And this is like standard in physics. So they said, well, we actually... We don't have to just train a neural network on the data we're collecting from Kepler. We actually know more about planets than what neural network knows about a planet. Uh, a neural network, you know, if you use it on audio data or on image data or on text data, until a few years ago, it was kind of the same neural network. Yeah. Now, in the last few years, actually, and this goes with the whole big model concept, People have been honing neural, even neural networks to be more specific to the kind of data or tasks that they're working on. So that's a kind of big model because you're, you're actually shaping the learning system to be a little bit more domain specific. So in the, like the example of exoplanets, you know, Julian put in uh, and his collaborators uh, put in, uh, uh, they said, well, we, we are looking for planets that are kind of about as far from their sun as the Earth is from, from our sun. Mm -hmm. So they said, let's sample the radius of the orbit from a Gaussian with the mean one Earth radii away from the star, and but with some variance so we can find mm -hmm. different radii. And then on and on and on with you know, 12 or 14 orbital parameters. And then the light comes out of the star and it goes through the atmosphere of the planet and the planet has layers in its atmosphere but there might be three layers it might be four you have to guess probabilistically right. and each layer might have a different thickness and that you have to guess probabilistically and then each layer might have a different composition and the light will scatter differently and you calculate all that and then it hits kepler and kepler has optics which do a convolution and an imaging array that then discretizes that and all this stuff and he writes a what we call forward or generative model a simulation of where the data comes from. So it comes from the star mm -hmm. and it goes to the telescope mm -hmm. uh, computer. And it, through that whole process, it steps through a bunch of what we call generative steps. Um, and you can actually think of that as a, a listing of conditional 
probability distributions. It's like, you know, the output of the light and then, well, then how the light is now probabilistically uh, um, arranged after it's passed through the planet's atmosphere and so on and so forth. So uh, that's a good example of a probabilistic program or a big model that there's a lot of prior knowledge that the physicist who knows something about astronomy and how things work can bake in there about the domain. And, you know, I think I saw a recent... uh, deep learning paper where they had 22 layers in their neural network. But we are, we're far from being able to just plain learn from data, Mm -hmm. like all the stuff that would be in like that exoplanet model. So, you know, we don't even really expect kids to do that. You know, with kids, we, or students, we say, yeah, you're going to learn from data in your career, but we're also going to give you a textbook and we're going to (laughs) like transfer some ideas to you that other people thought up. And that's really important. So, you know, big model is about uh, not only does it learn, but you also teach it. Hmm. And um, it's not a complete blank slate when it starts out life, but it's actually has some general domain knowledge. It's not the rigid artificial intelligence. Uh, I think on a previous episode, Ryan talked about sort of uncertainty in artificial intelligence and, and sort of the seminal work that happened there and the transition that's happened. And I think one of the places where artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning are coming together, you know, I think across the field, but probabilistic programming is a hotbed for that mm-hmm. because it's a nice set of tools and approaches that you can use to dis- create a machine learning system that sort of has both. Mm-hmm. You can teach it and it learns. Mm-hmm. So, know. so it, Given artificial intelligence and, and sort of working towards uh, a system that can can learn on its own, where do you think big models are going to be um, most useful or be able to make sort of the most forward progress? Where are we going to see the headlines for big mm. models coming from in the near future? Well, I think one place um, where it's quietly always happening, I said, is, is in science. Mm-hmm. So scientists can use these tools. And I think so... I should back up a bit. The goal is to basically create a set of tools that lets you quickly create a model, test it on your data, and then uh, iterate. So, you know, maybe maybe uh, one model was good in one way, and another model was good in another way, and maybe we could combine them together, the good parts, and throw out the bad parts. So, could we identify the good parts and where the bad parts are and get rid of those? And those tools don't exist today, amazingly. Um, the analogy is regular programming. So uh, there was a time when um, only a few people could really write programs for computers. Um, you know, you had to actually know how your hardware worked and where the register maps and the machine code, and you know, you had to, as well as all the way up to what your customer wanted in the application. So there were very few people who could do it, and it was really expensive. It took a long time to actually get software working. And then came a revolution over the last 50 years um, in compilers and all kinds of abstractions, um, debuggers, profilers, as well as our way of managing software, which we call now Agile, where you get constant feedback from your customer. So, you know, in, in, if you're really doing Agile, then every day you ship 
to the web, you ship your software and you A-B test it and you see if people like it better and, you know, and which one people like better. We don't have anything like that for machine learning. We're basically back in the 1950s or 60s. We, we have a few really smart people who know everything from the hardware all the way up to the application and everything in between. But it's still punch cards. And it's basically punch cards. And, um, you know, it makes it really hard for large groups of people to be able to do machine learning. And crucially, it makes it really hard for large groups of people to do it together. Right, we can have hundreds of people working on. I, I heard that the Google Maps project has 250 developers. Yeah. You can't do that in machine learning. I think the biggest machine learning project I ever had in my lab, or I've ever seen in another industrial lab, was maybe five people. Wow. Where probably, or maybe 10 or 20, but two of them were really doing the machine learning, and everybody else was like helping get the data and clean it up, and maybe paralyze the software or get it up on the cloud or do these other steps and. We'd like to automate a lot of that so that those steps become compiler steps. Getting it onto big cloud parallel hardware becomes just push a button. Mm -hmm. And groups of people can collaborate on these models and stick them together. So you have 100 people making one machine learning system. And as a result, not just because we want to spend lots of money on hundreds of people doing one thing redundantly, but because we want to get it done 100 times faster right? And or have 100 times more features like we have with regular software. So we have no way to do that today. So that's really our goal with probabilistic programming is not just the pro probabilistic programming, but kind of the development environment. The debug What is the debugger mm -hmm. for machine learning? What is the profiler? What is the compiler? So that's what we're really trying to figure out. So what do you think that will do to the field of machine learning itself when you can have 100 engineers who are actually working on the problem? Yeah, so we'll be able to... Um, First of all, we'll be able to build much more sophisticated machine learning systems than we can today. So one example, uh, I don't know if they've done it yet, but it, you know, it, there are many companies that have speech recognition and also companies that have natural language processing. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, no one is quite hooked up natural language processing to speech recognition. So this results in the problem like, hey, Siri, um, call my wife. You know, I'm driving home, and do I need to stop to pick up some groceries? And Siri says, searching the internet for life coaches. <laughs> you know, and it's like, what? Like, I'm driving home, I usually pick up groceries. Like, you obviously have no concept what I'm doing. All you know is, like, right. what phonemes I said, and instead of wife, you heard life. And so that aggravates us every day, but it's kind of fundamental. Like, we don't feel that Siri's really listening to us. But if we could hook up conceptual databases like Knowledge Vault at Google to speech recognition, then we could have context-aware speech recognition that would actually understand actually understand what we're trying to say, not just like parse the phonemes. Right. That would be incredible. But we we really it's very hard to scale. You could do a one-off system today where you, if you were Google, you could glue those things together. But I think probabilistic programming will enable us to glue things together like that all over the place every day easily the way we glue regular software together that's amazing that's going to be really amazing nice yeah we'll finally be able to build that robot and serve drinks <laughs> ben vigoda it's always fascinating to hear him talk about probabilistic programming yeah it's a really exciting emerging field that we've discussed a little bit uh you know in the past i also want to say that i'm a huge fan of his phd thesis i love the work that he did on thinking about how to use uh sort of um, analog circuits to do probabilistic computing. It's, it's something that I found very inspirational. And we'll have a link to Ben's thesis and a couple of other papers that he's been involved with on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And uh, that's it for us for this season. 
So uh, I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in for season two. Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Sentinai. Sentinai is using machine learning to automate data engineering and make it easier for data scientists to build software that makes real-time, autonomous decisions. Sentinai is hiring Haskell and machine learning engineers to help connect intelligent systems with the data they need. Interested? Email jobs at thetalkingmachines.com. Talking Machines is an original production of Tote Bag Productions. Our theme music was composed by John Parati. Our logo was designed by Alex Wilchko and arranged by Mike Rohr. Want to get in touch with us? TheTalkingMachines.com or TheTalkingMachines at gmail.com. Interested in a job you've heard about on our show? Email us at jobs at TheTalkingMachines.com. <laughs>